Okay, this is utterly awesome. Um, thank you so guys all so much for coming. Um, I mentioned some of you walked in earlier. It's been a long time since I gave a straight Gemara shir as opposed to a Lecha shir. And I don't know that I've ever given a straight extended Gemara shir to adults. So it's going to take some time uh, to work out. So please help me you know, feedback. All those sorts of things are great. Um, what I want to do tonight is um, start off by ask, uh, asking three kinds of questions. Questions about specific texts, questions about the kinds of texts, and questions about the questions about the kinds of texts. Because a large part of what we've got to do is ask, is ask questions, and I want to raise the issues of what sorts of questions we should be asking. Okay, so I'm going to raise all sorts of questions. Some of them you'll think are great questions, some of them you'll think are terrible questions. Those will say a lot about you. <laughs> uh, which of those questions do you think are important or not? And those will, over time, you'll discover that you identify more with certain kinds of commentators than others because some of them take those questions really seriously. And some of them don't. But when I ask a question, you should stop me and say, right, you know, if you don't really, if you think that's really a bad question, ask, like, why do you think that's a good question? Why could it possibly matter? Right? So I want to, so right, because I want to get into that kind of conversation. Um, secondly, I want to set out at least three kinds of, uh, three sorts of goals. One is to understand each text in and of itself. What does this, what do we think this text means? Second is to understand those texts as prior commentators have understood them even if we disagree with those. And then third is to understand those texts in the context of halacha. Now the word halacha itself can divide into more than three different things. We asked that question, but for now we're going to leave it simple. Right, so three kinds of questions. What is, right, questions within a text, question about the kind of text, question about the questions, and three goals. What does the text, this text mean? What has this text been understood to mean? And what are the implications of the way in which, the, of what this text means and how, and how it's been understood to me. And halacha, as it emerges, is gonna right, relate, is gonna deal with some kind of tension between there, right? How do we understand the text, that's right, and how does people with greater authority than us understand the text, right? To what extent do we think, right, are we really driven by the way we understand the text? And to what extent do we think what really matters is just what the majority of the rift, the Ram and the Rush understood the text to be, right? The way the tour understood the text. Okay, we'll complicate in, uh, in future weeks, that question of halacha, but this week we're not going to get, probably not even going to touch the word halacha, so I just want to put that out there to realize that in the end we want to understand this text in the context of halacha. And to me, one of the really exciting things about an adult Gemara Shir is that we all have experience. Right? This is not sitting in yeshiva learning about things that are, you've never had in your life before. And we're talking about employment, and each of us is on both sides of employment contracts. Right, whether it's in you know, you're just you know, yard work or jobs or anything like that. So all these things are things we have experience about and that will shape the way, right? You know, what do you think is reasonable? Right? What do you think is relevant? To what extent does the government? Okay, those are, that's, ex that's extreme background. Okay, so just be realistic. We're gonna, there are 14 pages in Makora. We're not going to finish them. We're not going to feel bad if we only get through page two. <laughs> uh, it's okay. Uh, I'm hoping that what we'll set it up is that it, that um, in future Shurim will repay setting up Kavrusas and setting it on, and setting it on your own a lot and right, some trying to ask questions, but that you'll be capable of surviving if you don't. But I hope there'll be all sorts, I hope there'll be you know, a WhatsApp group, whatever it may be, uh, people constantly talking to each other about what's happening um, in the Shurim. Okay, so turn to page one. Uh, so page one, we're going to start with, we're going to start by asking the first kind of question, which is what does this text mean? Okay, so here the, the first line of the first Mishnah of the sixth chapter of Masechet Bav Metzir. 
Okay? And it goes as follows. Hasocheret umanin, v'hitu ze'et ze, e'en lahem ze'el ze'el tar'omet. Okay, so here, um, right, this, it's that iron hay, I think, and above me, see if you have it. Uh, yeah, but so this is a source sheet, right? Okay. Did you mean page one on this or page one on this one? It's, it, it is the first line of the Mishnah, but it's about the source sheet goes that starts there also. Right, it's page, you end it backwards, it's page one. I, mine starts at page seven. <sighs> okay, that's why, that's a problem. Can you share with David? Because probably someone else has one through six. That's probably what happens once, once she gets split. Okay. Terrific. Okay. So, let's try. Like, what is it? Right. So, hasocher. That's a word we probably, un- right? Probably understand it means, right? It's somebody who pays something in exchange for something else in some kind of rental as opposed to ownership arrangement. Umanin. So, anybody have a translation of umanin? What are umanin? Craftsman. Craftsman. Okay. What would be? A word that right. What would be a word that that sort of means the same thing as luminin, but you would want immediate, immediately think can't be quite the same. Labor. Which would be in Hebrew. Poet. Poet. Okay. Right. So that is a really good question. Right. Is hasocher to umanin mean hasocher to umanin as opposed to hasocher to polin? So now, anybody know what the name of the next parak above Mitzi is? Hasocher to polin. Okay. So you have right. So you have right. So it could be that we umanin and polin are really precise terms. Uh, right, that we right, that we really want to we, re, we really want to know what that means. It's going to be a little bit problematic because the next line of the Mishnah, right? I have it underlined for you. Says Sochar the Chamar the Kadar Levi Prayfrin Chalilim the Kalal Made Upolim. Right, the very next line of the Mishnah, he talks about Polim as opposed to Umanim. So I have to figure out whether Umanim and Polim are terms of art or not. Um, okay, but let's suppose there. Are, so we have this verb Socher, we have this noun Umanim, and you have done this verb to this noun. Okay, so what would you think, right, if I had to translate, right, what would be a translation? Tricked. They tricked, okay, Hitu is great, and they tricked whom? Each other. They tricked each other. Okay, so now, right, so now we need to write, so who tricked whom? We say, who tricked whom? They both did. They both were the two. The Yomanin and the Sokhe, right? We don't have Paul again. Okay, right? So what we want is we have a circumstance where we say that there are there are there are Umanim and there are and there is a there is a, a Socher, so far as we know, right? It doesn't say Hasochrim at Umanim, it says Hasocher at Umanim. Right? We could decide if we want that the plural matters or not. Right? That's a, right, that's that's a, right, that's a, depending how price how precise we want to read text. We have Umanim versus Polim, we have plurals versus singulars. Hasocher at Umanim, Vitu, we agree they tricked. Right, they misled, right, they caused the other party to be in error. They tricked each other, and that says, that means that the, so, the Socher and the Umanim tricked each other. Okay. So they have nothing on each other except for a Tar'omet. So Tar'omet is an, inter- an interesting word. Let's assume now it means some kind of grumbling. Right, it's like the low, mutter- the low mutterings of thunder. That's how people try to understand it. <laughs> okay, now a taromet is a really interesting, really interesting phrase. Because we say in Lemzel is an ela taromet. So that means that they have a taromet, but they don't have a... Monetary claim? A monetary claim. Maybe we, a, a clear case or a clear... They don't have... Clear argument, maybe, yeah. Okay, so they don't have... I'll try, let, me, I'll, let me try a pr- formulation on it, see if you like it. They don't have... A viable action at law. Okay, 
but something wrong was done. Okay, now that itself is a very powerful idea. Uh, my son, Dov Chaim, I talked about it, said, how can halacha acknowledge that there are circumstances in which something wrong was done by A to B, and yet halacha sees no obligation to restore this? We have a statement. The statement is, right, halacha says this was wrong, and yet we do nothing to fix it. So one of the big questions we have to think about in this, right, in the sugi, in this parak, is why would there be such a circumstance in halacha? Why don't we try to fix everything? We can, try to th- we can try to create complicated things. We can say, you know what? It means that we use, non, not, we use means of enforcement other than the force of law. Mm-hmm. Right? That we try and use mm-hmm. conscience. Right? We, we, right? As we call it, maybe Taromit is the same as maybe not. Right? Right? Maybe it's <coughs> or maybe it just means that there are circumstances which Halacha thinks wrong things happen, and so what? Not everything is the responsibility of halacha to fix. Okay. Now, if he says, right, so do you think that means that they tricked each other in the same case? Or it means that, right, that they tricked each other either way? Right. Is it a circumstance, right, where we engage at the same time, essentially? Right. So, it's, right. So that's right. So two ways of understanding that. Right. One is right. Right. There's, an, there's, an, there's, a, there's a relationship between a socher and umanin, and each of them causes the other to be toe. And then you can understand. Okay. So that solves our problem. So we have a circumstance in which there are offsetting penalties. Right. Yes, sir. I guess I thought about it. I interpreted it differently. Yeah. Okay, excellent. Right? So really we have three ways we can understand Zed right? on two different axes. One is does Z mean either way, or does it mean both ways simultaneously? And then as Arya points out exactly right, right, that if we take the plural of Umanin seriously, we say, why would we need a plural? We need a plural because to set up ZZ. Right? So if A contracts with Umanin plural, and then those Umanin then trick each other, that would have the question, they have to trick each other mutually, it has to be one way or the other. Right? So then all they have against each other is a complaint. They don't have a, right, they don't have a legal mm-hmm. cause of action against each other. Now, if it's, that's because they did it to each other and it's mutual, so that's a pretty, that's an easier explanation of why we leave it as a taromit unenforceable. Because, look, they did it to each other, right? Offsetting penalties. But if it means either way, so that means we have a whole, we have two different kinds of actions in halacha that are, that we acknowledge is a wrong done by one person to the other. And yet, um, and yet halacha chooses not to correct it. Right, so that's right. That's a that's a question. Now, do you think this Mishnah gives us anywhere near enough information as to what the case is? No, right. There are no. infinite ways in which you can trick each other. So you have a whole problem. Like, what is this mission? What is this mission intended to do? Right. If you right. If if you if there's a, an employment relationship between right between a sofer and a manim, and they whichever ones they are, they trick each other, right? But how do they trick each other? Shouldn't it matter? 
no matter what you do to trick somebody else, there's no possible monetary cause of action. We could make that claim that there's something about the term he too, uh, right? As opposed to some other term which we could try and come up with, right? That he too is something that only generates a term omit, but something else generates a cause of action. Uh, right? We could try to we could try to claim that, or we could say that maybe you know we could try to figure out like what a mission is, right? What is this mission? What is this mission trying to trying to do if it only gets us that far? Okay. That's one set of questions about the first line, which will occupy us for right, the first line can occupy us for you know for a month at least. Uh, okay, so now we're going to ask uh, another question. So this parak is called Hasocher et Omanin. So why is it called Hasocher et Omanin? Because those are the first words of the parak. So the next question is right, what is a parak? Is a parak just an, right, is just an arbitrary way of breaking up a masefta? Uh, right? Maybe, for example, the way we break up Prakim is so that the chapter titles will be memorable. So we broke up one is Asokhar Domanim, the next one is Asokhar Tafolim, because that's easy to remember. And really, there's no, right, there's, no there's no conceptual difference, there's no break. Right? Do we think that Prakim in general have themes, and that you're supposed to try and connect everything basically in the Perik uh, to the theme? And then if you ask that question about the Mishnah, we're going to have to ask the question in a much more complicated way. Like what is the relationship between a, a Gemara, the Gemara and the Mishnah? Right? What is a Perik of Gemara? Is the Perik of Gemara about the same thing as the, as the Perik of Mishnah? Or is the Perik of Gemara just whatever happens to show up with the Mishnah? Right? The Meiri likes to say, we'll see, Meiri likes to say, well, this is the Mishnah, and this is what the Gemara says about the Mishnah. And then there's the stuff that got thrown in tangentially. Right? So Meiri is pretty clear that the Gemara, right, really, the agenda of the Gemara is driven by, by is driven by the Mishnah, and then there's other stuff that gets thrown in. Um, when I'm trying to be provocative, so I, I used to tell my students, I feel like telling my students that the Gemara is a commentary on the Gemara in the same way that the dictionary is a commentary on the alphabet. <laughs> it's not. It's just a way of organizing stuff. Right, the agenda of the dictionary or the encyclopedia is not to explain the alphabet to you. Right? So it could be that the Gemara has a totally different agenda. It could be that there is such a thing as a parak in Mishnah, and not in Gemara. Or there is such a thing as a parak in Gemara, and not in Mishnah. Now, if there is such a thing as a parak, we could do all sorts of interesting things, like saying, oh, this is how it begins, this is, an end, this is how it ends, it's, there's supposed to be a progression, there's supposed to be an envelope structure, all sorts of things like that. If we say that a parak is just a way of breaking stuff up, okay, no big deal. If you want to know the names, the big, biggest name about trying to make it meaningful, is uh, Dr. Avi Wolfish in, uh, in the Herzog College in, in, um, in uh, Gush Etzion, uh, and my uh, dear friend Rabbi Yaakov Nagin, whose book Nishmat HaMishnah that just came out in English is, was, is like a, an acolyte of his, trying to make the structures of Mishnah meaningful. Okay, I'm asking that question because I gave you, right, right, what I gave you on page one is the sixth parak of Mishnayas edited in a biased way. They're dot dot dots where I left stuff out, and the first Mishnah of the, the first Mishnah of the seventh parak, because I want to try and show you something about the way they relate to each other, which I hope will raise a lot of questions. We're not going to get to Gemara tonight. We're only going to talk about Mishnah, but if you're learning on your own, you should realize you should be asking the same kind of questions <coughs> about Gemara. So here we go. The first line we just say is Hasochar to Omanim. Then, the Gemara goes off onto a um, what seems to be. Uh, right, which uh, you know, a subsection of that. You hire particular kinds of laborers, 
it's a chamar of it's a gadar, right? You hire right donkey handlers, um, right, and you know, and other kinds of, of porters and carriers to bring things uh, that are necessary for specific circumstances, right? Wedding wedding accoutrements and things like that. Or poalim the Okay, so it's like a subcategory. You hire people for work that will that has to be done by a certain time. Right? If people bring you the flutes and the wedding's over, that doesn't help any. Right? The, right, 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 the weddings and funerals are time dependent. And so if you hire somebody they say, but I got you know, I was only at 24 hours late. <laughs> right? What's the right? So that's right, so that's a particular kind of uh, a particular, a particular kind of circumstance, any kind of davar she'aved, that's a category that you know in halacha from Cholomoid, right? Uh, right, and things like that. Vichazrubahem. Okay, so now chazru is an important word because we were talking about hitu in the first line. Now we're talking about chazru. So just like we have to ask about poalim and umanim, are they the same thing? Are hitu and chazru the same thing? So you, this answer is not, right? So really, really you have to... All right, I'll, I'll put in just a, a moment of brief propaganda that you'll get used to in the course of the shir, but so just so you get a counterintuitive sense. There are two kinds of sensibilities. There's a pshat sensibility and a drash sensibility. Pshat sensibility means that you really don't care about things like that. So the whole goal of pshat is to, make is to make everything fit existing patterns, and so tight. usually we say, oh, that word means the same as that word. That's a pshat sensibility. Drash sensibility assumes every little thing has to be meaningful. Okay, it's not, it doesn't, very important to realize that Pshat is not closer to the text than Drash. There's two ways of reading different kinds of texts. So one way, right, so Matt, you're the model Midrashic sensibility right now is, right, every word has to be meaningful. Every choice of word has to be meaningful. Or we could say no, right, the whole, right, we have synonyms. It varies it to be less boring, right, to be, uh, right, to be less boring. Or the Mishnah comes from lots of different yeshivas. In one yeshiva, they like using Hitu, the other yeshiva, like using Chazru. When they put it together, they didn't bother, they didn't bother standardizing. Right, or different eras, right, issues like that. All those are perfectly possible. So we have, right, so it could be that this line is, an ex is a special case of the opening line, or it could be this line is totally something else entirely. Okay, now we get to, right, so makom she'en shamadam, so if there's a chazara, which prevents, this is not zed zed, right, this is all employee, right, if the, if the employees, um, right, presumably, the employees are hired to do time-dependent things, and then they back out, so that, right, that's taking right that's right that's taking advantage of the employer. So makom she'en shamadam, and now we get right so cheralehen. So if there's um, right, so whatever makom she'en shamadam means, right? Maybe it means the same thing as makom she'en ish. Maybe it means something else entirely, uh, right? So cheralehen. So you can hire workers. Let's assume now at their expense. Ol mataan. So mataan presumably means you can trick them. So that might be a way of understanding the relationship between the two relations, right? The first one says, there's, you have a taromet, but if there's something you did in addition to hata, right, you also, you did hata in a case which causes, an, which causes you a davar ha'aved, so then all of a sudden hataya becomes legitimate. Okay, this could be very, you know, say my son was not you know, so enthusiastic about this because here we have, so the first thing we say is that there are wrong things which halacha has no recourse. And then the other thing we say is, and sometimes when somebody does something wrong to you, you can do a wrong to them right back. You don't even have a term it, right? There are circumstances in which you can actively trick somebody. We tell you that in law, right? In those circumstances, you are entitled to trick them. Okay, that's a pretty, that's a pretty challenging thing also, right? Um, right? This is going to be hard if we want to you know, give a Musr at the end of the 
Right at the at the end of the shir, right? How we get to how we get to uh, to Naitan. Okay, then we get to Hasocheret Umanin v'Chazrubehen Yadan al Hatachtona v'Imbalabayit Chazarbo Yado al Tachtona. So now it seems like we have a general rule, except that it doesn't begin by saying Zehaklal. So is this a totally new section of Mishnah? Right, which because Chazara is totally different than he too. And is it really different, right? We have the question, which way is Z, is Z, Z? So here we have, here we have it, right? Not the way Arya wanted to understand it, but as either way, not both ways. So is it connected to the previous line, in which case, right, that would tell us what Z, Z meant? Or is it totally new, in which case it could be, right, in which, in which case it could be this one is, is both ways and the other one is mutual. Okay, and there's an outcome. The outcome is Yodan al HaTachtona or Yodo al HaTachtona. Um, Okay, now we have the same opening case of Socher So we ask, like, what is your done? What does that mean? Yeah, right, their hand is underneath. What does that mean? Right, it sounds like we, we, we decide the law in, right, with a bias. Right, as opposed to saying the law is an abstraction which is just applied to the circumstance. Right, we decide the law in such a way that whichever side was choser loses. Okay, that's, that's really not, right. It's not just Taroma, it's a legitimate outcome, right? It's a legitimate outcome in the law. Right, yeah, no, this is what we, we as judges, right? We're all judges now, right? When the situation comes out, right? So we say the way it works out is if you were Choser, whatever that means, which may not be the same as Hataya, and this is presumably not just in the special case of the Varha Aved, but generally, whichever side is Choser, we rig the law to end up, right, to go against them. Okay, but then we have two other principles, right? We have the Chol HaMeshaneh, anybody who alters, so alters what? If it's, you know, you know we have, I have altered the terms of my agreement, right? The Darth Vader line, I think, to uh, Lando Calrissian. I forget what the next line is, right? Something like that, right? So that sounds that you know, is Darth Vader not really being Choserbo, right? Is he just being is he just being Mish uh, Um I was trying to figure out what right what that uh what that right what does Mishaneh mean as opposed to um as opposed to Choserbo, another clearly Dol Tachtona. And then we have the Chola Choserbo Yadol Tachtona. So that raises like a, re a really important question which I think will run through the right the whole year. Which is right. So we said, so the uman, right. So whichever side is chazer yadol tachtona. Now we have a general principle of chazer bo yadol tachtona. So it could be okay. That tells us that the case of poli of umanim and the employer was just a special case of the general rule kol chazer bo yadol tachtona. Right. So the movement of the mission is specific laws about umanim and sochrim. And then we put them in the context of general contract law. So a big question is, do, is halachic labor law just the application of general principles of contract law to employment? Or is labor law a unique category, right? which is not, which we don't have to think about in those lines. Maybe there's just a line here that in the context of employment, maybe the mission is telling you that look, there's a special rule in terms of law, and then, right, and, and then it just, randomly says, and by the way, that's also a rule that happens to exist in contract law, but don't think this is the same thing. Okay, so really, 
one of the things that happens in halacha over time is that people try and uh, often to standardize, right? Because when you're learning, so right, your goal is to try and build connections. And then you look at it and you say, hang on a second, but the Gemara never used that, term, that phrase over there. Right? That only happens in the 19th century. That somebody said, oh, look, this is a set, right? I have a way in which I can conceptually frame employment law. So the employment law looks exactly the same as, um, as, other, as other areas of law. So should that be this? Right? Do we think that employment law should be governed by the same principles as regular contract law? Or are there, is there a way in which thinks specifically about the employer-employee relationship? Which creates different, which creates, which creates differences around it. Do you want a question, Shlom? Well, I was going to say there's explicitly a pasuk that says that you can't let the sun set without paying the workers. This is true, right? We could quote, we could quote a bunch of psukim about concern for workers. Um, we could also look in vain for the Gemara to quote them. Yeah. <laughs> Not in this pair. <laughs> right. So the question is, do we assume? Right. Everybody, everybody knows all those psukim. Excellent. So it could be Umanim and Paul, right? So if we take Umanim and Paulim really seriously, then we say maybe all the Tsukim and the Torah are talking about Paulim, and that's next parak. Right? So that right, that's a whole right, that's a whole huge question. Um, which I say is probably not explicitly answered anywhere in the Gemara. But which shapes your whole the whole parak. Okay, right, we could give a totally different shirim, right, about um, about, uh, you know, if I were trying, as opposed to teaching this parak, we're just trying to teach broad issues, right? So there are all sorts of fun things about capitalism and, and, and socialism, what Allah has to say about them. Uh, my friend Rabbi Yitzhak Blau wrote an article about this, uh, which we gave each other in Makarot. Um, Rabbi Yosef Eliyahu Henkin has a beautiful essay about this. The Nitziv has essays about this. Rabbi Chaim Hershenson has an incredible essay uh, about that. So right, it could be that, right, that we need to know that before we approach the Gemara. Or it could be that we need to try and draw that out of the Gemara. Okay, now, tell me about the whole parak as a whole, right? So we've seen, like, the structural issues in just the first three units. So then the parak wanders off and talks about renting stuff as opposed to renting people. Right? So right? one way of conceiving of a of hiring people is, to, is that you're just renting them, right? But aside from those of you who are economics people will have very specific notions of rents in the back of your head, uh, right? But I'm using it in a non-technical sense um, right now. Um, and it just goes on, right? Then it, then it says, you know, by the way, it mo- then it moves from uh, it moves from the laws, right, laws of renting stuff to I think it's called the laws of Bailey's, right? We call shomrim, right? It talks about like which kinds of employees are which kind of shomrim on their kind of stuff, right? So I guess the next line, kolam is shomer, shomer, shomer sacharein, and then you know while we're talking about we then turn to people who are taking loans, Shomer uh, And then we get to Abishol's line, which says, um, Okay, so we move somehow, right? We start, right? So we could say, look, you know, the Mishnah is associative. It starts off with a socher to Manim, then it moves to Hasokher at something else. Then it's right, then it talks about uh, right, so once we're talking about renting stuff, then we talk about cases where they merge. Right, where you hire people and at the same time they have responsibility for the stuff they're working with. And that got us into Shomrim. And once we're talking about Shomrim, there are other circumstances in which you become a Shomer, not because somebody explicitly appointed you as a Shomer, 
but because some other kind of contractual relationship generates Shmira obligations, namely Mashkon. And then we talked about special relationships about Mashkon. And there's no unity at all. Right? There's just a flow. Or we could say that what we, right, we move, right, is that the structure of the Perek is to move us to recognize that we think of all employee-employee relationships as parallel to the rich person lending money to the poor person and collecting collateral. Because that's really what employment is. Right? If one person has money, the other person doesn't. And you make the other person give you something in exchange for giving them the money they need. Right, so we look at it that way, right? So then we have a right. Then we have all of all of Shlomo showing up again. All right, so if we think of the Mishnah as a structural unit, so then we have a way in which we can think of it, right? Then we could ask all sorts of questions, like what what happens if the employee is really really rich, um, right? Professional athletes in, in right in successful leagues, right? Do we think right? Does it matter, right? What about unions? Right, let's right, 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 think of all those sorts of things, right? Whether that's whether the Gemara is even talking about any of those cases, or is the Gemara talking about a hypothetical case? Right, and we, right, um, okay. Then, um, right, we have a case that seems, um, you know, we have a case of Mavir Chavit, um, right, which seems like it should really just be a special case of Sakhara Techamar Bet Kadar earlier in the Perak, and yet for some reason ends the Perak. Tough to know why. Just there. And then we get to the seventh parak. The seventh parak begins as follows, right? So now we're, we're still on the bottom of page one. So you you hire polim, not umanim. And here it's pretty clear that you're that the nature of the poel in this Mishnah is that they are contracted to some extent by time. Because right? you can tell them I need you to show up early and right, and leave late. But it doesn't mean that you're paid by the hour. Because, right, if that's the case, you could just say, okay, you tell me to come early, you come late, so fine, pay me, right, pay me overtime. But there's some kind of relationship, right, where the employer wants certain hours out of the worker. It tells him to to come early and to leave late. Um, so the owner's answer is, where that's not the custom, where the, right, where called community standards, right, which is still how right, most union contracts are, are organized in terms of hours and things like that. Um, right, so we say, right, right, if that's not the local custom, you cannot, um, you cannot compel them. And then it's the same thing, you know, whether do you have to give them lunch or not? Well, that depends on what the local custom is, right? You ready to give desserts, right? So you have to give them desserts. Right? Everything is in accordance with the um, with with local custom. Then we have this wild story, right? A story of and Matias says to his son, "Go hire us workers," and he goes and he, right, and he um, and he arranges as to what he's going to feed them, and he comes back and his father tells him, "You know what? These are Jews. Jews are all sons, right? right. Jews are right. Jews are all. Uh, even if you did that if you gave them the biggest feast in all the world." <laughs> you not have fulfilled your obligation then because they're Abraham, Yitzchak, and Yaakov. So what do we do? We do is Ella, actually at Chilvim Lecha, save them, Morlehem, Almanach, Ein Lechem, Alai, Ella Pat, Vikitni of Bilvan. Tell them, right? Set out an explicit rule in advance. You can't negotiate with them. Uh, you can't negotiate with them 
um, once they've started working. Because once they started working, they deserve everything in the world. So we have to make the, 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 the rule up front. Now, Hashem and Gamaliel says, no. Okay, so we could obviously try, I spend lots of time trying to figure out what's the machlokit between Hashem and Gamaliel and Hashem and Asya. But I want to talk about a, uh, two, I think, somewhat bigger issues. First issue is as follows. Um, why do we have any labor law at all in Halakha? Let's just say Hakol Kimele Gamadina. That's what the principle is here. So that should just be the answer to everything. Hakol Kimele Gamadina, right? That we right, that we have right, we're, we have freedom of contract. Right, we are the uh, right the you know the court in the court before the switch in time that saves nine in the New Deal era. We believe absolutely right, uh, we believe absolutely in freedom of contract. The restriction on the freedom of people not to be able to agree to whatever contract they want. And all Halacha says is right that um, right that you you can't um, arbitrarily, without prior agreement, alter the uh, right alter the nature of a uh, of a contract. And then. Um, Right, and if you, if you take that, so then Rabbi Yochanan ben Masya is a really interesting figure because what he says is, yeah, and even though a kol kimenagimdina, so we could say a kol kimenagimdina, so that means that no individual can ever, um, right, can ever shape the, uh, can, ever, can, ever sh- can ever shape the law. But um, he says, no, really what it is, is all the menagimdina sets up is a default. Right, but really, there are no intrinsic rights of workers that they can't contract around. Right, so he says that in principle, I think they deserve everything in the world. But so what? All you have to do is get them to explicitly acknowledge that they won't take it. Right, what's the purpose of his statement that they deserve everything in the world? Right, are there any protections to workers against exploitation? No. Because all contracts are binding. Right, so that's one way, right, so that's a, and if we understand halacha that way, <coughs> so we say is, you know what, the sixth chapter is just a, right, is just about cases where, um, where for whatever reason, common custom is not enough. To, we don't know what the common custom is. Right, the halacha, halacha, at the end of the day, halacha upholds any contractually negotiated arrangement between, between employers and employees. And then, right, so we want to understand the sixth chapter. We'll have to say, you know what, but there are, there are a couple of cases where, um, right, where we can't just say by the, the, that the minhag is. Now, and really all the Mishnah does is it says, look, you know, those are cases you can't just figure out by looking at general custom. They're hard cases. So we'll create a custom. Now this Mishnah is the custom. There's no right and wrong. Wouldn't you say that the default should be? The way you're setting it up, you're setting it up that the sixth is the exceptions and the seventh is the rule. Mm-hmm. So wouldn't you say that the rule should come before the exceptions? If I thought that Masechta's had structures and right, you're supposed to read them in order and right, and Prakim aren't just things that you look right, you know, that just ways right. Yeah, absolutely, right. So that's a great question to ask, right? Do I think of a Masechta's having a structure? Do I think of things that are tied to right? That that's a great question. An absolutely great question. Okay, but that's a really big issue, right? When we're think, talking about the sixth parak, are we trying to? Right, and this relates back to Shlomo's question earlier. We're we trying to think about concepts of justice, or all we're trying to do is to acknowledge 
whatever it is. And then this easy outcome, which is you ask me what's halacha nowadays, the answer is none of this has any relevance at all. Right? That it just records what the custom was in the Jewish community at the time of the Mishnah. And now the question is whatever the custom is now. And so, for example, like, do we support or oppose minimum wage laws? Right? Minimum wage laws are where this came from the U.S. constitutional law. Right? Do we, we want to put restrictions on freedom of contracts? An interesting notion, right? So it could be that we say Dina de Malchusa serves the same purpose as Mina Gamadina, which is what a lot of postgames say. So if there's a law against, if there's a law against, um, against minimum wage, uh, or is, is there a law against employing people at minimum wage, at low minimum wage, so we acknowledge you can't pay less than minimum wage. You have other postgames will say, no, right? We, you know, we are not bound by U.S. by U.S. Supreme Court law. We think freedom of contract is an absolute halachic principle. We can't do that. And there are other postgames mm-hmm. who will have Shlomo's sensibility and say, hang on a sec. Mm-hmm. The purpose of halacha is to prevent workers from being exploited. Right? And these contracts are exploitative. Right? So those are, right, those are right, all those issues that show up in American labor law and Israeli labor law are part of halachic labor law. Uh, right, and the question is, is, how do we get from the Gemara to that? We can just say that you know, actually all we're going to do is just Torah Lishma because there is no purpose to anything we're doing now except for recording, uh, except for recording, um, except for recording contracts. And then we'll have to figure out, right, so now we, have, we can go back to the question I asked at the very beginning about what a Tar Omed is and say, is a Tar Omed only, what a Tar Omed is, a circumstance where somebody had a reason to expect more than Nineveh Medina and didn't get it? Or is the Taromet saying, you know what, there are good reasons that in general halachic law has to be governed by community, ex- community standards, but we have concepts of right and wrong above that. Right, so two, different, to- two totally different purposes about Taromet. Right? One is that Taromet is just within our morally neutral framework. It's also a question of whether Right, whether it's only going to apply to circumstances where people get less than they should in our general standard thing that everybody gets what the standard is. And the other way is no, that this right, Taromid is a way of acknowledging that there's always a tension between the law has to recognize economic reality. And so, like, you know, so if we impose a high minimum wage because we really want to do that, but the result of that is that fewer people get employed, so maybe we don't want to do that. But at the same time, we can recognize that there is such a thing as exploitative contracts. It's how do we do that, right? That's a, right. So that maybe Tarumid is is Tarumid is about things like that, right? Maybe worker, right? Maybe workers in sweatshops have a Tarumid, even though they contract it that way, and in fact, everyone else is contracting that way. But we think there's something structurally unjust about contracts that apply that. Okay, so we gotta, so we read when we read the so yeah, we have to address uh, we have to address those sorts of questions, and maybe right as uh, I think Arya said, I don't remember what's correct, right? Maybe there's a difference between Paulim and Umanin. In that regard, maybe we think about them entirely differently. Okay. Um, are there questions about the questions I'm asking? Right, you recognize right. This is all questions. <laughs> right, I'm not. I'm not. I'm trying very hard not to take a clear a position about any of this. Um, and I'm just trying, trying to arm you, so that if I then take a position later, you can realize. But that it's a, it's a product of my taking a position about these big issues, and you can challenge me and say, "Hang on a sec." But the Gemara doesn't say that. You just, right, you're just, right, you're just starting the circuit, right, you know, if I did it, like, if I were, you know, if I were cheating, right, in class, right, my friend Jacob again might do this. You know what? Every year, we're just going to start by singing to, right, by, everybody should meditate about the psukim. 
about right about paying workers on time and letting and, right and not letting the and, and letting them work in the fields. Are we just gonna have a five minute meditation before Shira every week about those things, and then we're gonna start this year? Obviously, that would shape uh, right everything right everything everything you say. So I'm trying not to do that the first year, um, although uh, you'll see right as we get on probably by the third or fourth year that I do have a bias to some extent rid of those tukim. So I'm going to be upfront about that. Um, but maybe it's in the Gemara, maybe it's not. Right? So I'm going to try and convince you to some extent that, there, that, that even when it's not in the Gemara, it, right, it really is. So I have to see, right? so I have to see if, I can do that legi- if I can do that legitimately. Okay, so let's turn, let's turn. what I want to do now is um, <coughs> have an introduction to um, thinking about a sugya in the same way that we just thought about the Mishnah. Right? We're just thinking about right, whether we're reading individual lines or whether we're reading something structurally. Now, a sugya, in a sense, is easier because um, a sugya often, like there is a beginning and an end point. Right? Now, we could complicate that in lots of cases, but generally, like, you know, like there's a beginning and an end point. So I want to read, I want to show you uh, first, the um, I want to read the very the very first sugya of the parak with you and show it to you in two different ways, and hopefully you'll be reasonably convinced that the second way of doing it is a legitimate way of doing it, and then we're gonna we're gonna pull back and, and look at this. Right, it turns out that the sugya we're reading is not actually a whole sugya; it's just part of a sugya. So we're gonna see what happens to that sugya when we put it into a bigger picture, and that's probably where we'll end this week, and then. Right, you can do it yourself. The workers say, "Well, it has to be put in an even bigger picture." Because right, we're going to keep on pulling back. Okay, so here's the sugya. Uh, okay, so the Gemara opens by saying, um, "Right, so, uh, right, so the, the mission doesn't say that the umanim or the socher and the umanim right were chuzer with each other." The Gemara makes the claim that the use of the term "atu" as opposed to "chazara" in some way supports Arye's reading that it means that the Umanim who have magically become Poalim tricked each other and the trickery does not occur in the relationship between the the Socher and the Uman. Okay, and we're gonna for now, right, because we don't we're, we're not we don't have time to do this so give Ian right now. We're gonna take that as a given that there is some kind of relationship between the use of Hataya as opposed to Chazara and the claim that Zeh refers to the relationship among the employees and not the relationship between the employer and the employee. Okay, so Gemara says, "Hechi dami." So what's the case? Okay, so we we have to magically introduce a third party. The employer says to an agent, "Go hire Poalim for me." It's always Poalim, and the and the agent is the one who tricks the Poalim. So the agent is also an employee. So it's very tricky that we've gotten the word Poalim. Not only have we switched from one name to polyam, it turns out there are two kinds of polyam. There's the hi- there's the hiring poel and the hired poel. Right? It's pretty astounding to make the claim that, that right that's that's what the, that's what, that Titu refers to two different kinds of polyam. There's no mutuality whatsoever. Okay. So the employer says, whatever the terms of our contract are, whether it's Work whether it's work product or time, whatever it is, the right, we don't know whether that makes a difference yet. The the bal habayis, right, which we're going to translate for now as employer, says you're going to get paid four, and the agent goes and says three. 
So the Gemara says, Tarumet, Mayavite. So why would there be a Tarumet? Subur Vikavil. There is a meeting of minds. The, right, the agent said three. The employee said, sure. So why do they have a Tarumet? All right, so this is the Gemara taking a pretty clear position that whatever you agree to contract to, that's it. The agent's fee. There's the agent's fee. So, right, so the agent might have, right, so we have, might have a whole discussion about what's the relationship between the agent and the employer. Right, but the workers, you might say, the workers, right, he said three, they, right, they have no direct relationship with the, employee, with the employer at all. Right, so what's, right, so what's the big deal? Uh, right, so that's, okay, so it must be, that the, that the employer said three, and the agent goes and says to them four. Hechidami, okay, good, but then, so then what's that case? So Gemara says, If the agent says, I will be responsible for your salaries, then Nasi Blumidi Dave, right? So he said four, they agreed to four, let him pay. And the Gemara quotes a, quotes a Brighta that seems to support that position. So Gemara says, No, no, it must be that he said, he said four, and he said that the owner is responsible. So the Gemara says, So you can't, right, how, you can't bind the employer for his agent's words, <coughs> right? Because he, right, he didn't follow his agency. Right? That would be a whole new regulation, right? That wouldn't be, have anything to do with employment law. That would have to do with agency law, right? If you hire somebody as an agent and then they, they act outside the bounds of their, of, of their agency, right? Are you responsible or not? The government seems to think, obviously not. You're only an agent insofar as you're bound by the terms of your agency. If the agent said, if the agent quoted the employer for, he told the other employees three, right? then he's pocketing the one, and they could be upset with the agent skimming something that you know, they don't work. Okay, interesting claim if he were if he were pocketing the one. Well they could they'd be grumbling but they they wouldn't have recourse, right? Because they, they agreed to three. Okay, so you're comfortable with that, but only and you're comfortable with that being a case where they have a moral cause of action in some way but not an actual cause of action, but you're assuming that the agent pockets the difference. Well that would explain that could give you a grumbling angle. Right, so it might be. Or it might be that, that they can that they can have a grumbling even if he doesn't yeah. pocket the difference. Because he's supposed to be on their side, not the employer, right? They're also right, right? They're, right? That's these are all machlokas, machlokas rishonim that you're bringing up. Absolutely right. Um, I think if I'm reading the rishonim correctly, the Gemara says. But, so what should happen in that case? The way the Gemara understands it is, so we have now is a situation where people did work in good faith for an employer, without a binding contract. Because the employer and the employee never had a meeting of minds. So the way that should be resolved is they should be paid they should be paid whatever the standard rate is because <coughs> he got the benefit right now there's going to be complicated cases what happens if the work they did was worthless right right uh, right if there's no work at all right there are all sorts of ways in which we could complicate this but the case the Gemara suggests is right is what happens if right in assuming that the, that they were hired for work which is perfectly useful work to the employer the only, right, the only the only gap is right is what the salary is. So the Gemara says in such a case where somebody does work, uh, right, for somebody who wants the work done, but for whatever reason there was no contract. So the answer is let's find out what they get paid whatever the whatever the going rate is. So the Gemara says lo tzricha ika de mega make ika de mega bar above ika de mega mitkar betlasa the right umberle ilav the amart lan bar above trachinan lan bar So the answer is well you know what. This is one of the places where there isn't a going rate. There's a variable rate. And since there's a variable rate, right, we can't set the 
we can't set the wage at the prevailing wage. Um, so what they get, presumably in this case, is the lower wage. But they still have, they have a cause of action against the against the agent because they said, look, we it's not that we got paid lower than the prevailing wage, but what you have is here, I think the term is an opportunity cost. Right? We we believe reasonably that we could have held out for the employers we needed for, right? Because right, we're talking about some kind of market, right, where right the where the early people, right, who are sure they get jobs, right, get for three, and everybody else, right. Everybody holds holds out at the end when it's right, and you might right if you hold out till the end, so you might get four because it might be there aren't enough laborers at the construction right the site where the construction workers gather, and it might be there are too many right. If there aren't enough, then you get four, right then then you'll get, you'll get more because they'll need to they'll need to bid for you, and if there are too many, then you get less right. So you, you deprive me of an opportunity cost, which the response to the agent is no, right. I just right you just it's just a clear obviously there's always a risk benefit ratio right. You get if you're willing to, to risk more, you get right you you might get paid more, but you didn't. Right, your total, your sum probability is exactly the same. So the outcome of the sugya here is that a taromit, right, we could say a taromit occurs in the instance of an opportunity cost. Um, right, we could, right, and um, we could discuss whether it's an opportunity cost to adjust your risk-benefit ratio differently or there actually has to be an actual opportunity cost. Or maybe we would say, no, a real opportunity cost, which is obvious, Right, you would have gotten this, but you didn't. That would be an act. That would be actionable, and it's only a taromit when we're talking about adjusting your right, adjusting your risk-benefit ratio. Okay, that's one way of looking at the sugya. Okay, what I showed on, on the bottom of the page is the same sugya, but uh, right, realize that what's going on that if you, you can look at the sugya instead of thinking about it substantively the way we just did, right? We get, or we're following the arguments at every stage. You can just look at the sugya and saying what the sugya is doing is creating an okimta. And what came to is when you take a text, you limit it to a specific case. So watch what happens. Right? So you look at this, the second version of the Sugya on page two. Right? So really what happens is the Gemara says, uh -huh. so the Mishnah means we're only going to read the things that start on the right margin. Right? And then it says, okay, to number one is it has to be where there's an agent and the agent, right? Okay, number two is that the agent, that the, the, um, that the Balabayas says, uh, said three and the agent says four. Right, next Okimta is, and the agent said it belongs to, it belong, that it, the owner is responsible for the salary, and the circumstances is that the salary is variable, and the ground for the taromit is, if you hadn't told us, if you hadn't said four to, four to us, we would have, right, we, right, we would have got, we would have got, held out until we got four. Okay, so a way of looking at the sugya, instead of following it in the labyrinthine ways we, we, we showed with different terminology, all the sugya is, is a way to create an Okimta on the Mishnah. And the okay of the Mishnah is very elaborate, but all it says he do, remember we said when we looked at the Mishnah, we said he do Z Z, that doesn't give you anywhere near enough information. So we have to give you all the information. The information is that there's an agent. And the agent said and the agent said um, said the owner said three and the agent said four. And the agent said that the owner's responsible that the owner's responsible for the salary, and the salary right, and the, the and the salaries are variable in those circumstances, and the grounds for trauma is opportunity costs. Right? That's the whole purpose of the sugya, and all the mechanics of it are irrelevant. Right, so I want to write a way of thinking about a sugya, right? That right, that that right, all that all the sugya is doing is finding ways to get certain kinds of intellectual moves in. And the intellect, one of the standard intellectual moves is an okimta. And here we have an okimta. Now we understand the mishnah. But you could ask yourself, is that really a plausible read of hituzeh zeh? 
right? right? We have to put in the third person. We have to, right? We have to put. We have to. We have to find that the that the gap between the third person and the others is only in one direction. We have to, right? We have to claim that he, right? That the third person actually said that the first that the that the owner is responsible, and we have to create a particular economic circumstance. There's no way on earth you could ever get that out of the line he says is there. So you could claim it's all right. There was a masorah. Right? The mission is not actually supposed to teach you anything. The mission is just a way of remembering things you were taught. So, right? so that's what this is. Right? This is just the Gemara writing down what everyone had said out loud when they were doing mission. So it's the wrong question to ask whether the Mishnah, whether you can read this out of the Mishnah. You can't possibly read this out of the Mishnah. I mean, it's not uncommon that the Gemara seems to limit the Mishnah in a non-intuitive way. Right, okay, right. And, and one of the answers to that is, you know, this is where this is right, students often go nuts and say, hang on, isn't the Gemara being arbitrary? Right, and we say, no, no, they had a Masoret. Okay, right, could be. Okay, so now we're going to pull back around. It's around this year. So turn to page three. Okay. So on page three, I gave you, instead of the structure of this little unit of the sugya, I gave you the structure of the sugya on the Mishnah. And the structure of the sugya on the Mishnah, you'll see, is a series of it's a series of okimtas. So the first one, right, the first paragraph, right, gives you all the right, gives you gives you all those right, the right, A, B, C, D, and E are the conditions you need, right, of the akim to the Mishnah, right? That the, the workers there's a literary thing that the workers trick each other, right? That there's a third party who's right, there's a third party and uh, right, an agent who's who tricks them, that's B. C is right, is which which direction he tricks, right, which direction there's a gap between the the employer and the agent. D is right, who's responsible for the salary. E is right what the prevailing wage is, and then F is the ground for the tournament. Okay, so I gave you the, right the next three ibaisemas um, right, are the next three okimtas Gemara offers. So number two ibaisema, the amrule ilav right the ilav de amratlan berba havizila ban milsa ladguri. So what I want you to see is right every okimta ends with a line that says de amru. Okay, what does that mean? Right? Every, every, every element of the Gemara ends with an explanation of what the grounds for the Tar'omit is. Right? So whatever, right, the sugya is a very long sugya, very, right, very long and complicated. But the bottom line of the sugya, if you look at it overall, is we're coming, right, is, it's a meditation on what are the circumstances under which we will tolerate an outcome which says that there is a, there is a problem but we do not care to act, right? we do not think the law has to resolve that problem. So the first one is opportunity costs. The second one is, If you hadn't told us for that salary, we would have thought that the work or being an employee was degrading. So, right, so the, the ground for Teromit is a dignity cost. Now that's a really powerful notion, right? Why? I mean, you you have a contract. You agreed to the contract. You did the work. Okay, so this time you didn't quite agree to the contract, but you did the right. The answer was there's there's right some there's certain kinds of contractual relationships that even though you get fair pay for your work, nonetheless you suffered a dignity cost for doing that work. So it could be that all right, all contracts right, are people getting less than they deserve, right? Because Jews actually deserve everything, right? To say that, right? So that's right. So that would be a really that would be a really nice connection. 
Okay, right? So one possibility is opportunity cost, the other opportunity is dignity cost, and that's a really powerful idea, right, Justice, right there. As we're like, how many other times are there dignity costs in, right, in employment? And why don't we, right, why don't we make them actionable? Maybe there are only certain kinds of cases we don't make them actionable, right? Maybe we don't, we don't make them actionable here because we can't. But our ambition as a society, right, would be to prevent all dignity costs. Ground, what do you mean by dignity costs? So, for example, I mean, usually, also, you're, you're going to have certain workplace conditions. Right. I mean, you know, that would that would be part of the contract. So, right. what, is, what is a a surprise cost dignity cost that wasn't understood? Well, the answer is money. But, I mean, well, that's well. I'm only willing to be a garbage man if you pay me fifteen dollars an hour. But I thought we already agreed on the money, though. But this is a case, right? We're we're dealing with right. This is a subcat, right? Where there's an agent, and the agent said I was going to get paid more. Right in the end, right in the end, right in the end. This, as, right in the end, we say is, but I agree, right? It's, you don't even right, have to decide if the last condition of variable wages applies, where this is a circumstance where it's clear that he overpromised, right? That's right. We have to figure out how many of the conditions of the first thing is, but we're but we're going to assume at least the first three conditions. There's an agent. The agent misrepresents what the owner is willing to say, but the agent said the owner is responsible, right? So they have no claim directly against the agent for the money. They have no claim against the owner because the owner didn't commit to it either. And they have no claim that they were cheated because they got paid fair wage. But there's a dignity cost. That's a fascinating thing to think, right? Because say, right, dignity cost, but you were going to do the work anyway. How can it be, right? How can, how can you have less dignity because you were paid less? Right? This is something you hear from NBA players often, right? Well, you're negotiating well, salary well, because it, of respect. It can, be, it can be a dignity cost when, 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 when a relative, relative compensation, right? You can say, ah, oh, someone's making more than me. Then it's a dignity cost. Right, so that's a really, that's a really powerful. Right. Is it dignity relative to what other people are making? And oftentimes your example is that's the issue, right? And that seems that, that that's the issue. That often Except here, the whole point is you are getting paid what everyone else is getting paid. If indeed that's, if indeed that's what we're talking about. Right, but that's, that's, I think that we're going to read that that's the, way, that's the way this is going to end up, right? So that's a really powerful claim. Right, the right, and there's a righteousness, right? That there's a dignity cost in all employment. If there's a dignity cost, why do we allow people to contract around it? Why isn't dignity our primary consideration? But we do, right? But that's a concession, right, really. Okay. Okay, number three is. So the last thing is, right, is because, right, that we worked better and harder than we would have. So that's also a really interesting notion, right? Doesn't, don't employees always have the obligation to work at maximal capacity? Don't we have all these inspirational stories, right, about people, right, you know, who wouldn't, who wouldn't stop to say hello? We, we say the short money, right? We say, we say the, sh the, the, short, the shorter benching, right? All the things because, right, employers have an, employees have an absolute, no. Employees have an obligation to work. Pardon? Your obligation is to make a Ah, okay, right. So employees are only bound to like Medina, and you got more out of us that, right, right. It's true that it was our choice not to work that hard ordinarily, right. Generally, we worked, you know, we have a union and we work to union union rules and not not as hard as we possibly can. But you got right, you got us to work harder because, right. So that's a really right. That's a whole challenging notion also about the related that employee that every right that employees certainly have no moral obligation to work as hard as possible or as well as possible. They just have to provide value. Right, that's a really interesting, right? That's really interesting, right? What did they lose? They lost nothing. Right? They lost it. They, they did a better job. They lose future work. Do they lose future work? No, they'll probably get more work now because, right? Because they have a reputation as being excellent workers. Well, <clears throat> if something would require 
two hours of work and I finish it in an hour, then I'm only going to... Ah, so you think it works faster. But they don't say that, right? Because they said that we worked in a way that was worth four to you, right? If, it's, if you do the same work in an hour, so then right, you paid us, right? Then you paid us less. But they don't say that, right? The cases where where they say we you paid us what you agreed to pay us. So it could be we did more. Right? It could be we did more, not we did it better. But the language of the Gemara is Abidasa Shapirasa, right? We worked better, uh, right? So that's a really interesting, right? So that's also a really powerful thing. Okay, then the last line, right? Um, which I just to be upfront is the second to last Okimpto of the Gemara, uh, but we're not going to expand the, the the to even wider angle lens this week. The last one the Gemara right, says no, really, it's not talking about right, really it's not talking about sorry it is still talking about the father tricking each other, and we are still talking about an, an agent, but we're going to reverse it. It's the owner says four, and the agent said three. Um, Right? So it's not that the agent overpromised. It's right, actually that so we you said, hang on a sec, but we said that was just contract law, right? They agreed. Right? So what's the bit? Right? The Gemara said right up here, right? Sovereign Vikabil, right? We, we, we saw a plan. So Gemara says, no. Because they can turn to him, they say, the Amri, Timna Balaf. You, Mr. Agent, what are you doing offering us less than the empl- right, than the employer was willing to pay? So the obvious response is, I'm doing my job. Right? If I engage, right, so I, I you know, I successfully bought a car today. Right? So do I have a moral action against the person I bought the car from if they would have given it to me for less if I had bargained harder? If right, if they had given it to a dealer, right, and right, they said sell it to, you know, sell it to me for at least X and I right and I right, and I paid more, I have a complaint against the dealer? No, that's not how agents work. Well, who's the agent representing? It's, it's the agent representing the employer. Is that, is that really? Yes, yeah, we're still in the case. Zil Ogarli Paul, then go hire me workers. Oh, okay. Right, so, right, so what happens between, right, so the structure of this unit of the Gemara is we start off the opening line of the Sugya, the opening of Kimta assumes that, that if there is a meeting of minds on the contract, suffer Vikabil. You can never have a moral, right, you, can, you, can't, you can't have a moral complaint about that way. So we have to reverse the situation. It has to be, right, it has to be the agent, uh, the agent overpromised. Because if the agent underpromised and they agreed, suffer Vikabil. Gemara doesn't understand what a moral complaint could be. The end of this unit is no. Why should freedom of contract change the fact that they got less than they could have? Okay, well, so we can. At the end of the day, it's just Taromit. Right? I mean, right. Still a free contract. So it's still just Taromit, right? I have to figure out whether, right, what Taromit is or not. But we could say, right, you know, what's what the Sugya progress, right? What we, what we have here in the Sugya is essentially the development of the New Deal court. Right, we start off, we think that all that matters is freedom of contract, and then we say no. Right, now, we're still not willing to enact it into law, right? so that's very simple, right? not, but we have a whole shift. Okay, so that's right, so we're going to ta- start talking about next week, is, right, what is that claim? Why would workers have a complaint to the agent of the owner because he drove a hard bargain for the sake of the owner. Would it matter, right, as Andy raised, whether right, whether he pocket whether the middle the middle person pockets the difference or not? Would it matter exactly what instructions, the right the right the uh, right you know what it, does it matter if he said higher than a four or if he said higher than he said he said I'm willing to pay up to four but I want you to get as good a bargain as you can, right? Would it be would it matter if he said higher than for three but if you have to go to four right right? That again, that would be that, if that's what the Mishnah means, that's a very narrow case. 
Right? So what re- in what sense are we really under- interpreting the mission at all? Right? It really flow right if we if we if we understand it that way. Okay, so that's what that's what I want to set up as our right as the, the questions to ask about right about right. So you get to see a like what sorts of questions to ask, and right and b what the big questions overall are. Um, what you what the Makur, what the Makurit on the next um, just right. So I think that obviously right. So if you want to prepare for next for next week, so just getting the sugya right, getting the whole you, know, you can go bekias through the whole sugya that I just did for you right with it in broad outline. But if you want to actually, if you want to go ahead the way that I'm doing it in the structure of the shir, so the next unit is trying to figure out what is the nature of this complaint al not to me be'alav, right? What is what is the, what it, right? Where does that come from? Where do you get this idea? Um, so you can right, you see that you'll see that the one line Rashi says about it is Rashi said it's a pasuk initially. Okay, duh. <laughs> we all know Tanakh Bahar, right? <laughs> And so what is that, right? So what is that Rashi about? So we're gonna right, we're gonna look at a bunch of Akronim about what the Rashi is about. We're gonna test whether the Akronim are asking the question the way we recognize as the right kind of question or not. Right? The way we test that is by looking at every other place in Shas where Rashi says Pasuku. Right? And the answers that they give for why he says it here, do they work in all the other places? Right? That's so the back of the back of uh, page, so page four is just a list of all the places where Rashi says Pasuk, right, Pasuku. Uh, right, so you can look at you can look at those as many of them as you want or not, and see what the what the pattern is, and then um, and then page five is the other places in Shas where the Gemara uses the same line Altima Tuvmi Balav, and see if it can help us figure out uh, figure figure out what um, what that means. That's page sorry page five and six, and then on page seven we're going to move into uh, the way the Achronim the Rishonim on the Sugya and the Achronim understand it. Okay. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.